This morning, I want to speak to you about sexual sin. Sexual sin. Now, I know that um, many people who never go to church think this is all Christians talk about. And I'm sure you've heard someone say, why is the church so obsessed with who I sleep with? Uh, it's none of your business. End of, they like to put it. Now, I think that is Satan's lie, because think about it. When was the last time you actually had a message specifically focused on sexual sin? Well, I've, I've had messages that have touched on the subject, but I haven't had for a long time a message specifically dealing with the issue of sexual sin. It's something that we tend to leave to youth fellowships and such groups, men's groups and things, uh, but we don't hear messages specifically on the issue. So I don't think true churches are actually obsessed with sexual sin at all. Uh, we talk about it less often than the schools do, than the media does. It's all over the media. Than the film industry does, and many other sectors of society. And I think that's the problem. When we think about how big the problem of sexual sin is in our society, it does not take long for us to agree that we need to talk about it more in churches. Because if we don't, we are living, we are letting the world catechize us, catechize our children. We are letting them teach us and bring up with unbalanced and godly worldviews on this critical issue. Now, since, and this is especially important, in the society that we're living in, which is highly sexualized. Now, of course, since sin entered the world, every society has struggled with sexual sin. All sexual sins we see today have always been there. It's nothing new. For example, take homosexuality, for example. People think it is a new thing. They call it a sign of progress. But the first book of the Bible, Genesis, condemns it. Right there. Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been there since way back. Since Genesis. You take bestiality, for example. People think, again, it's a sign of something you'll find in an affluent Western civilization only. But Leviticus condemns it under the penalty of death. Why? Because it's always been there. Nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. So the problem we are facing in society, they're not new at all. I think the only difference between the past and today when it comes to sexual sin is the sheer quantity of sexual sin and the different expressions of the same sins. We have more sexual sin today than we've ever had. It is true. And I think there are two reasons for this. The first reason is technology. Technology has widened the scale of sinful sexual practices. There has always been prostitution, but it is now global and it is digital. There has always been people who had had problem with their gender, with gender identity. So it's been there. But the difference now is that we can get NHS-funded doctors to change their bodies. The technology allows for such modifications. Technology has had a huge impact. So technology is one reason we have more quantity of sexual sin. The second reason is that Western society has changed how it thinks about sex. 
His story of sex is now tied with the story of human progress. The dominant view in the UK today is that there must be no limit on sexual expression because doing that limits our personal autonomy. That's a dominant view. Everyone should be free to have whatever sexual activity or thoughts they want as long as, two things, as long as it makes them happy and it does not directly harm anyone. Emphasis on the direct. They're not bothered about any indirect effects. And soon the direct harm won't be, is not really an issue. Soon. This is the message we hear all over the internet, isn't it? Pop music, film, television, many novels. This is what our young people are learning, especially in our schools, at every level. And I mean at every level. I was surprised this week, actually, talking to my daughter, and she was telling me, I didn't even know this, that the teacher told her, my daughter is about eight, the teacher told her that she, that she knows a young, girl, a young girl who became a boy and lived as a boy. And the teacher said, it's fine. Now, I didn't put up a big problem with that because actually we've taken a child out of school, but that's a different question. But I was shocked that I didn't even know that. I'm finding that, that out now that we have eight-year-olds in our bar at a church of an England school being taught that. It is not a surprise, therefore, that sexualization is affecting people at younger ages. Sexual, activity, sexual identity is shifting, as I've just illustrated. And the sex industry grows larger and larger every day. Now, the tragedy here is that the church, as I said, do not talk about sexual sin enough. Therefore, many of our people in our churches sat here do not think about sexual sin biblically. What's the antidote? Well, I think the only way we can withstand the current tsunami of rampant sexual sin around us is to make sure we study the Bible verse by verse. Because nearly every book of the Bible speaks to sexual sin. So if we're just going through the Bible verse by verse, we'll come across this sin many times. And what God's antidote for that is. And that's why today we're actually talking about sexual sin. If you are coming here for the first time, I haven't selected this. We are going through the Bible verse by verse. And we've come to Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Last week we looked at verse 1 to verse 4. What does it say? Verse 1 to verse 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We said last week, morning and evening, we looked at that verse, those four verses. We said that Paul there is encouraging us to keep living for Christ. Why? Because we have a new life in Christ. That's the first reason. We looked at that in the morning. And because we have glory waiting for us. And that's verse 4. That's what we learned last week. Now, today we are in verse 5. From verse 5 all the way to chapter 4, verse 2, Paul now gives us specific direction, practical directions, of things we need to do for us to keep growing 
in living for Christ. Okay? And the first thing where Paul starts, the first place, he starts is verse 5. Sexual sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. And covetousness. Which is idolatry. And he goes on to verse 6. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. The focus today really is on verse 5. We'll look at verse 6 next week. But verse 5 specifically is telling us that living for Christ means killing your sexual sin. It's that simple. Living for Christ means killing your sexual sin. <coughs> Notice that phrase there. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What does that mean? It literally means kill your members. Not physically, of course. Kill your sin in you. Paul is giving us a violent and painful image of getting rid of sin. He doesn't say get rid of it. He says put it to death. He's saying to the Colossians, if you're going to live for Christ, you must murder any traces of sexual sin in your life. Don't tolerate it. Murder it. You must actively kill sexual sin because even though the power of sin has been destroyed over your life, Paul has already said that, the presence of sin still remains. Do you remember the three P's we looked at? The penalty of sin, Christ has paid for on the cross. The power of sin, the resurrection of Christ has destroyed over our lives. But the presence of sin still remains in us. Sin is still present in your human nature because your physical body has not yet been glorified. That will only happen when verse 4 takes place, when Christ appears. So you have a responsibility to kill your sin, your sexual sin. Don't tolerate it. Don't swap it for another sin. You must take a knife to his throat and you must leave the knife there until he dies. That's what Paul is saying. And so to help us cure sexual sin, Paul spells out this sin in detail in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We might think that Paul is listing different sins, and there's a sense in which some sins are included there. But actually, what we have here is an expanding definition of sexual sin, so that nothing is missing. I want you to think of this verse like the solar system, right? The sun is at the center of, the, of eight planets, right? That orbit around it. Mercury, of course, has got the shortest cycle, and you've got Neptune there with the widest cycle but all part of one solar system. In the same way, all of these sins, you see, relate to sexual sin, but with each sin, Paul widens the circumference, the definition of what sexual sin is. So first of all, Paul says, kill your sexual immorality. Kill your sexual immorality. What is that? Well, the original word for sexual immorality here is pornea. It's actually where we get the word pornography. But in its original meaning, it simply means any sexual behavior 
outside the union of marriage between one woman and one man. And Paul says we must kill any sexual behavior outside that. Now, God is not against sex. How do we know that? Because God created it. It was there before the fall. He created sex for us to enjoy and procreate. God is against sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman. That is the boundary God has set. And any sex outside that boundary must be killed. Paul says. If Paul was speaking to us today, he would say, kill any sexual activities outside biblical marriage. Kill your adultery. Kill your fornication. Kill any sexual deviancies in your life. Kill anything that this depraved society around you approves of. Homosexuality, transsexualism, bestiality, all the endless list. Kill it, he says. Kill it. And I know that's different message you're hearing in the classroom. Because what you're being taught, especially young people, and what we are hearing on the television is that we can do whatever we like. And that is evil. That is wrong. We must kill any sexual immorality. The second thing Paul says here is that kill your impurity, isn't it? Sexual immorality, impurity. What is that? Well, the original word for impurity there is, I can say this, try to say this, is akathesia. It is the opposite of catharsis, right? You know, catharsis is that intense process of emotional and mental healing. Akathesia means the opposite. Moral decay, pollution. That's why other Bibles, if you've got the, perhaps the King James Version or another version of the Bible, it may say uncleanness or filthiness. It is anything that morally pollutes our lives. And so Paul is saying, kill any sexual activities that defile your mind. Pornography, virtual sex, sexting, and other abominable things in our time, Paul says, put it to death now. Put it to death. Thirdly, Paul says, kill your passion. Did you see that? Passion. What is passion? The original word is pathos. And in this context, it simply means uncontrolled sexual passions and expressions. I think what Paul most likely is talking about is simply addiction to sex. Addiction to sex within marriage and outside it. If you are a true follower of Christ, you must kill any sinful addiction, including the addiction to sex within marriage. You're not, you're, you can enjoy sex within marriage. You're encouraged to by Paul in Corinthians, but you must not be an addict. And this goes for any addiction in your life. Smoking and, 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 and drug taking or just gaming and, and whatever you're addicted to, you must kill it. That's a passion to be cured. A Christian must not have any addiction except to worship the Lord. Fourthly, Paul says, kill your evil desires. Your evil desires. You see that? Evil desire. 
The original word there for desire is epithemia. It is the evil tendency to sin. The attraction of the pull or drive to commit sin. Not merely lust, just this strong affection for the attraction to something. That is evil that God forbids. Paul is saying, don't stop at killing your sexual activities. Kill your evil sexual longings. Longing for something God forbids is a sin in of itself. The sexual feelings and desires you have can be sinful. You don't have to act on your temptation for it to become a sin before God. That's the point Paul is saying. A strong attraction in your human biology or your mind can be sinful to God. Now, perhaps to us here, I'm I'm just simply stating the obvious. But, I believe many of our friends and family would regard what I've just said as mind-boggling. They would regard what the Bible is saying here that our sexual desires can be sinful as medieval thinking. Outdated. They would say strong feelings is what makes me human, they would say. They're who I am. If you deny my sexual desires, you are denying me as a person, they would say. You're a horrible human being. You have caused me offense. You do not deserve to exist. You need to be cancelled from Twitter. It goes like that usually, doesn't it? But the Bible says that is a wrong way to think about sin. Especially sexual sin. As human beings, we are dead in our sins. That's the doctrine of total depravity. That means our entire human nature is infected by sin. Even our desires and emotions have been bent out of shape. We have sinful sexual desires partly because these desires are directed from our corrupt mind. Okay? And that's what makes these desires sinful. And that's why the Bible calls them out here. So you don't have to act on your sin for it to be sinful. The mere pull towards something God forbids. Working through the mind is evil before God. I'm laboring this point about evil desires because there's a new group of professing Christians who are leading many people astray on this issue. Theologians, books you read. These people call themselves same-sex attracted Christians. And they use that phrase, of course, because it's a bit shocking if they were to say gay Christians. What they've said is that, yeah, we accept that practicing homosexuality is wrong, so we're not going to use the phrase gay Christians. But we we still have a strong attachment, strong pull, strong desire to homosexuality. But we're not doing it practically. And so we call ourselves same-sex attracted Christians. They believe having that strong attachment to homosexuality is not a sin. They say it is only a sin when you practice homosexuality physically. But what they say here goes against verse 5, doesn't it? Evil desire. Desiring what God forbids is a sin. It is a sin to crave or be strongly attracted to what God forbids. Whether you act on it or not, you must kill your evil sexual desire. And therefore, it is an abomination to be called a same-sex attracted Christian. 
It is. One shouldn't use that phrase. Call yourself a Christian, period. And seek out to kill the sin. Don't legitimize what God forbids. Don't call yourself an evil, desiring Christian. That's perverse. Kill your sexual desires. And kill any sexual desires or something God forbids. Not just what I've just been talking about in the context of homosexuality. Kill all evil sexual desires. Finally, kill your coveting, isn't it? That's the, that's, that's the fifth thing Paul says, the final thing. Covetousness, then, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. I can never say this word properly. Hopefully, some of you teachers can correct me afterwards. Covetousness, which is idolatry, right? What is that? Covetousness is inappropriate or uncontrolled desire to have more and more. It is essentially a drive to possess and possess. And it's not just about sexual sin, it's everywhere. But what Paul is saying here in this context is this. The problem with sexual sin is that it is really about having this deep, fierce passion to break boundaries in order to satisfy the self. And that's why Paul says the problem of sexual sin is essentially idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Why? Because it is a worship of creation rather than worshiping the creator who made us. Having sex outside the boundaries God has set is an attack on God himself and it's a worship of creation. And I think this now brings us back, doesn't it, to the question that people often ask, which we entered at the beginning. Why does the God of the Bible care about sex? Why does God care about my sexual sin? Now, I've already established that God created sex. And he gave it as a gift to us for, to enjoy and to procreate. But he cares about it because when we practice sexual sin outside the boundaries he has set, it is an attack on God himself. In other words, all sexual thoughts and practices are spiritual. You heard me right. Sex is a spiritual activity. Now, there are many ways we could go around that. We could explain, for example, just the union that sex brings and that sort of thing. We don't, have, we don't even want to get into that today. But get this. Sex is spiritual. At many levels. And particularly at this level in which when we practice it outside the boundaries God has set, we are practicing idolatry. And so God forbids that. And of course, the other reason God forbids, because if we are going against God, then sooner or later, our practice of sin will destroy our lives. And we see these effects, don't we, in our society. Addictions to sex steal our freedom, doesn't it? We've seen human relationship destroyed as a result of evil practices of sex. Or sexual sin in general. So all of these things and many other things is why Paul is saying here, living for Christ means killing your sexual sin in all its forms. That's why Paul says here, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, 
and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what does that look like, killing sexual sin in my life? Well, there's a story in the Bible, which you, I'm sure you've come across, of King Saul and the people of Israel. Do you remember the story? God tells Saul to go to war against the Amalekites, right? And to, to totally destroy all of them. That's what God says. God wants to get rid of idolatry, and he wants to wipe them completely. So Israel goes to war with this order to destroy everything, and I mean everything. And Israel wins the war, doesn't it? Led by King Saul. King Saul takes King Agag alive. King Saul destroys all Agag's people. But he does something strange. He keeps King Agag alive. For whatever reason. And then he decides to keep all the other nice things of King Agag. Some of the wonderful sheep, wonderful gods. and He keeps these things. All the things that are worthless... He destroys them, right? So he keeps Agag, and he keeps the nice things. So what does God do? God immediately sends his prophet Samuel to Saul. Samuel arrives, and he says, "Is the bleating of sheep I hear? Samuel is not very happy. And so he delivers to Saul the bad news. He says, you have failed the task, Oliver. You are fired, he says. You will no longer be king of Israel. God told you to kill everyone and everything, but you have done your own thing. You've cut corners. You have therefore rejected God, and God has now rejected you. And then Samuel does one of the most shocking things in the entire Bible. He grabs all of Agag, and then we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 33. Samuel said, as your sword, speaking to Agag, has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It is shocking. Not since the days of Judges, when a priest scattered 12 parts of his concubine across Israel. Have we ever seen anything like this? Under God's order, Samuel dismembers King Agag. He cuts up this man who is an idolater, an enemy of God's people. Why does Samuel do that? Before the Lord at Gilgal. Well, to show Israel that this is what God wants us to do with our sin. Our idolatry. God doesn't want excuses. We must kill it. And that is what Paul has in mind here as he speaks. He's saying sexual sin is dangerous. It's on the loose. You must lay out of it. You must grab it. You must lay the axe to the root of this sin. You must aggregate to the pieces with no trace found. Specifically for sexual sin, but for all sin even. You don't start thinking God understands the situation I'm in. I'm in a difficult office at work and I just can't escape the sexual temptation. Well, he does, but not in that way. God won't lower his standards for you. Kill your sin. 
Do not excuse yourself by blaming people around you, society. Don't say everyone in my class is into pornography. Everyone in my school is sexually active. It's hard for me to step here, what you say. Yes, it is hard. Yet this is going to cost you. But that is why verse 5 says, put to death. It is hard. It is painful. That's what death is. But you are not alone. Christ is with you if you're truly converted. Don't say you can't do it. Because chapter 2 verse 8 to chapter 3 verse 4 has shown you clearly, if you've been with us, that if you are a true follower of Christ, you are already dead to the world. So you can kill your sexual sin. So the devil is telling you, you are your sin. No, you are in Christ, the Bible is saying. The power of sexual sin has been broken on the cross. You died with Christ. No true Christian is a prisoner to any sin. And if you haven't heard that, then you need to go back. Then the sermons are online. Work through them again from verse 8 to this present verse we are in. You are now the tragedy, if I might say, the blessing and tragedy of your Christian life now. There's a tragic sense to it, humanly speaking, is that you are a sinner by choice. The world genuinely can be addicted to these sins because they're under the power of Satan. You, on the other hand, what makes your sin so grievous to God is that you have a choice to say no. Even more grievous, that you can't say no to sin. Because the power of whatever addictions you have the power of whatever sexual sins you're into have been broken on the cross. Now this begs the question, doesn't it? If we can put sexual sin to death, why are so many people who attend church living in sexual sin? Why do they tolerate these sins? Research after research has shown there is no difference whatsoever. Between Christians, people who come to church who profess to be Christians, and the world when it comes to this sin. It's been done. There's no difference. One research by the Banner Group in the USA shows a staggering 68% of church-going men, 68% of church-going men, okay? And listen to the next one. And 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. 50% of people preaching. And then it goes on. It says 76% of young Christian adults, that's three in four, right? aged between 18 and 24, actively search for pornography. In church, people, they're not doing it at church, of course, but they, they attend, well, actually they probably are. If they're that addicted. But the point is they're church attendees. Now I know this is American data, but there is but I believe it's correct, first of all, because the data is slightly dated, at least five, six years, so, and it's gotten worse. And the other point is that 
There's no difference between the UK context and the American context. I think it's probably worse here. Because in this nation, we're even more godless than the Americans, believe it or not. At least they have a semblance of religion in someone. Here we don't do God. So these statistics of people in our churches, I don't think you should be thinking these statistics are out there. We should think these are here. Pastorally, I've got to think that. As a parent, you've got to think that. This is in my home. As husbands and wives, you've got to think that this is in our marriage. Or this is a danger, at the very least. Don't think you're special. You're special in Christ, but you are still living in a morally depraved culture. And that is just pornography. I hope you picked that up. Because there's a whole lot of other sexual sins. And the question, of course, is why do people claim to be Christians toward sexual sin? I'll be quick. I think it's two reasons. I'll try and be quick. First of all, they are most likely not converted. That's, we've got to start there. We've got to start there. They come to church, but they are not truly converted. There's the Bible is opened at home, but they haven't come to true faith. Those who willfully carry on in sexual sin most likely have never loved Christ. Christ died to forgive your sexual sin. If you are not bothered about putting your sexual sin to death, it is because you have never died with Christ. Parents, if your son or daughter is engaged in any sexual sin, do not be deluded that they are on the path to heaven. I mean, it's what puzzles me as a, as a pastor. The parent could sit here and hear the gospel on and on, but they're still deluded about the true condition of their, of their son or their child. Don't be deluded. The evidence is here. If they are practicing these things, they are on the road to hell. And if you're a young person here this morning, if this statistic of three in four covers you, you're on the road to hell. Regardless of what dad says. And of course that applies to all of us here. If you're willingly hugging sexual sin, you are in open rebellion against God. It doesn't matter whether you once prayed to become a Christian. Your love of sexual sin is, your, is evidence. It is declaring plainly that you're not yet born again. You must truly repent and be born again, or you will perish in hell forever. You must cry out to the Lord, Lord, I am not fighting sexual sin because I do not really know you. Be honest, Caleb. I am not genuinely born of God. I am lost in my sin. I am heading to hell. And I'm helpless against it. I need you to change me. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to soften my heart so I can truly repent. I need to be a true Christian. I have pretended long enough. Help me, Lord. Cry out like that. And I'll be honest with you. So some of you, you know, one of the reasons you haven't surrendered truly to Christ is because you're wallowing in sin already. And therefore, the gospel is like kryptonite. You know there is sin you must deal with. But you've gone one step, but then leave the sin. Come to Christ. Truly repent. Turn to him.
The second reason I think people tolerate sin is that for a season, I admit, there are people who for a season can find themselves tolerating sexual sin because they are in that season where they have seriously backslidden in their Christian life. For a season. I'm not talking about those that regularly indulge in these things continuously. I'm talking about those who for a season have found themselves battling against this sin. They have allowed the pressures of life and society to overrun them. They have foolishly given sexual sin a dangerous satanic foothold in their life. It's possible these people are genuinely converted. But like David, they are dangerously allowing the devil for a moment to get a upper hand. Now the problem with tolerating sexual sin is if you're a true follower of Christ, is that at some point what happens to David and Samson who happened to you? Samson lost both of his eyes. And he died humiliated in Dagon's temple. Because of his continued sin. David, a man after God's own heart, because of his sexual sin, lost his child, lost his family, humiliated publicly by his son, and ran off from the kingdom. The point is, if you are truly a follower of Christ, God the Holy Spirit lives in you. And he cannot allow you, his child, to live in continuous hostility against him. It's not possible. Our God never changes. The way he dealt with Samson and David and even Jonah for a different sin, he would deal with you. Because no loving parents wants to leave their child just like that. If you keep refusing to repent of your sexual sin, God will lovingly come upon you like a ton of bricks. And it's going to hurt and it will be painful because the deeper the disease, the more painful the remedy, isn't it? Richard Sieb says, if we have a time of sinning, God will have a time of punishing. Not out of wrath for you, but out of love for you. And it will be painful. Perhaps you watch pornography. Are you waiting for God to take away your eyes like Samson before you repent of your sin? You have looked enough at digital prostitutes. How long will you carry on in that sin? Repent now before God. Perhaps you are in active sexual relationship that God forbids. Are you waiting for God to give you a terminal disease before you repent of it? You know the way you dress is sexualized. Are you waiting for God to allow you to fall into some sexual sin and all the shame it will bring to you? If you're a true follower of Christ, you must put your sexual sin to death. There's no other way to live than to resolve to kill your sexual sin. Now, someone here may be thinking, I am sinning, but God has not punished me. I am having my cake and eating it. Oh, my dear friend, my friend, that is not a true Christian speaking. If God is letting you, listen to me carefully, if God is letting you carry on in sin, you of all people are most to be pitied. 
If you've not experienced God's correction, that's tragic. You should almost want it. Because your sin is the start of judgment from God. Are you walking on in sin and your blessings just skyrocketing? That's because you are an illegitimate child. Hebrews 12 verse 8 tells us that God is a loving father who always disciplines his children. Your lack of being disciplined by God is not something to celebrate. It's something to weep about. Because it shows you are not his child at all. And when you die, you face the wrath and judgment of God in hell. Unless in this moment, right now, you truly repent and trust in Christ. Now maybe there is someone here who is thinking, I do not want to live in my sexual sin anymore. I want to put this sin to death. How do I do it? Or perhaps the issue with you is not sexual sin and you've listened patiently and you thank, you're saying, thankful that this is not an issue for me at the moment. But I have other sins. How do I put them to death? Or perhaps you, you are counseling someone at the moment, a friend who's struggling with this sin. And you want to say, how do I put this? How do I help them to put this sexual sin or whatever sin they are going through to death? What does mortification of sin look like. It's a big subject the Puritans were excited about. I wouldn't say excited about, but they wrote a lot about it. Right? Well, just quickly, and I know you have listened patiently. Let me just give you five quick things and I promise to finish. Five quick things. If you just bear with me. I'll run through them fast. How do we kill sin in our lives? First of all, Killing sin starts with being honest about sin. Be honest about sin. That's the first thing. Be honest about sin. Do not sugarcoat it. You must face its ugliness. Point verse 5 goes on to, goes to great lengths, doesn't it? To uncover the ugliness of sexual sin. He's using different names for it so that we can face its ugliness. In the same way, be honest about how the Bible describes your sin at the moment. Don't say I look at pornography. Say I am a fornicator and I visit digital prostitutes. Learn to start using that language when you talk about that sin. And if you're married, be honest with yourself. Say I am an adulterer. I have broken my vows. And my spouse needs to know about this sin. Because I've not just sinned against God, I've sinned against her. Oh, him. Be honest about sin. Without honesty, you won't break free from sin. Be honest. That's the first thing. Second thing. Be honest about the consequences of your sin. Paul spells it out clearly in verse 6, doesn't it? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We'll come back to that next week. The point is to carry on in this sin is to declare yourself unregenerate. Be honest that to carry on in sin is to say, I am not really converted. I am still under the wrath of God. Be honest that this is what I am doing and this is my true condition. And I need to turn away from the wrath of God. Do not accept the lies of Satan that you can be genuinely converted and continue in your sexual sin. The Bible is saying it is not possible. Be honest about that. Thirdly, 
Accept whatever it will cost you to kill your sin. Accept whatever it will cost you to kill your sin. Paul says here that we must kill the sin in us. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore. And I've already said it means it's going to hurt. It means it's going to be painful to kill any sin. And you need to accept the pain of doing it. And this is the biggest thing in any struggle against sin. It's accepting the pain of surrender. Be willing to say to the Lord Jesus, Dr. Jesus, whatever the price, I want you to remove the disease of this sin from me. And I want to say the clear evidence that you and I are willing to accept the pain, the cost of sin, is that we are willing to confess it to someone else. You are not serious about killing your sexual sin if you are married, if you haven't told your wife about it. And in Kadarot. You are not serious about breaking free from sin if you're a young man, if you haven't grabbed all of a other or a believer in the church and say, I'm struggling here, please help. I just want to tell you about what I'm going through. Or a young woman speaking to another lady, just being open about that. If there's no confession, you can be sure there's no seriousness about breaking free from sin. Two things must happen to truly turn from sin. Repentance and confession. Repentance sorts it out between us and God. Confession brings healing and change. Speak to anyone who has truly recovered from the hold on pornography. It's genuine repentance and genuine confession or any other sin. Be honest. Accept whatever it will cost to kill you. That's the third thing. Fourth thing, pray to God to forgive your sin, of course. And pray especially for God to make you sensitive to sin in your life. Pray specifically that God the Holy Spirit would do that because that is why he's come. He's come to convict the world of sin. He's come to convict us of our sin. The work of God the Spirit is to convince us of sin and to shake us out of sinful desires. We must be people who are filled with the Spirit. Therefore, we must plead to God to do just that. To fill us with His power and His Spirit. Finally, and I'll end here, we must keep reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. You must remind yourself that you are now complete in Christ Colossians 2, verse 8 to 9. We've looked at it. You must remind yourself that you are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The life of Christ is your life. You are united to him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10 to 14. Keep reminding yourself that all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven at the cross by God. Not just forgiven, remind yourself that you are triumphant over the evil powers. Colossians 2, verse 15. Keep reminding yourself that you are now sat in heaven with Christ and that you one day appear with Christ in his glory and splendor. Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4. And of course, use all the means of grace. The preaching of the word. The fellowship of believers. Bible reading. The Lord's Supper. To strengthen you in doing all these things. I know I need to stop, but I just want to emphasize that point. Because it shocks me that I have people sometimes who come to me and say, I'm struggling with this sin. Or I'm struggling with that problem. Do you read your Bible? No. Do you come to church only in the morning? Yes, I don't have time for the evening service. 
Have you recently attended the Lord's Supper? No. Do you see the pattern? They say they want to be rid of sin, but they are refusing the very means God has devised to get rid of that sin. The means of grace. No one can heal themselves. We need to work with the means that God has given us. The means of grace. Being a believer is not complicated. God has made it very simple for us. The Holy Spirit lives in you and he's given you his word and he's given you the church to support you and all the means of grace. Use them. Some people say, you know, I'm struggling with some sin. I say, Are you com- have you been baptized yet? No. Well, that's your problem. You're already living in sin. You've not obeyed God in baptism and you're saying you're serious about sin. You're not serious about sin. They say, I want to fight my sin. I say, are you already, are you a member of a church? Do you have accountability? No. Do you know why you don't have accountability? No. Well, because you don't, you're not serious about your sin. You don't want to be accountable to anyone. That's why you're not yet a member. God has devised all of these things, you see, to help us fight sin. Anyway, I'll end here. My point is that if you do all of these things, the five things, you start killing any sin. And I mean any sin. You find that you're growing and living out your new life in Christ. So do it. Kill your sin. Amen.